0: Welcome to Calling a City to Life, a podcast by Queen's Park Baptist Church in Glasgow. Each week you'll hear from us two episodes, the talk and the chat. First up is the talk, and that's the audio version of this week's sermon as preached at Queen's Park Baptist. So this is your opportunity to listen to it again, or to listen to it for the first time. And later on in the week, you'll be able to tune in again and download the chat, We'll be we gathered round and discuss in a bit more detail some of the issues and themes raised in this week's talk. Thanks for tuning in to the talk. We hope you enjoy it, and we look forward to you tuning in again later in the week. Enjoy. We've made it. Congratulations. We are in the final chapter of Revelation, and I think at the end it's good to remember the beginning of this is a letter to seven churches. It is deeply practical. It challenges with the question of having gone through all of what John saw and heard. How then shall we live? And that's a question that we shouldn't lose sight of but let's um, turn to chapter 22. The words will be in the screen, follow along on your phone or your Bible if you uh, prefer to, uh, to do that. But let's, let's see how things finally end. Last week was the end part one kind of thing. Um, here John finally ends his letter to these churches. And he writes, the angel showed me the river of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of god and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit producing its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations nothing accursed will be found there anymore But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be in their foreheads and there will be no more night. They need no light of lamp nor sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true for the Lord the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. See, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your comrades, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of this prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, let the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. See, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay according to everybody's work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and fornicators and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It is I, Jesus we send my angel to you with this testimony for the churches i am the roots and the descendant of david the bright morning star the spirit and the bride say come and let everyone who hears says come and let everybody who is thirsty come let anyone who wishes to take the water of life as gift i warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book if anyone adds to them God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Amen. wonder of the different pictures that John paints for us there. What struck you? What stuck with you as we read this morning? The passage kind of splits into two sections. Some people think that it stops at verse 5 and then changes gear. Verse 7, some people go on to verse 7. That's not really that important. But what is important is that in... The opening passages here, what we have quite clearly is a continuation of this vision of the new heavens and new earth that dominates chapter 1, which Ian preached on last week. I don't know how to say this without being sycophantic, but I really like Ian's preaching. Ian is a good preacher. Listen to what he said last week if you haven't caught it. It's on the podcast. It's dead easy to catch up. With that again, but it's worth kind of like saying or recapping some of what Ian said last week about the vision that John has. A vision which is actually in line with much of what Paul says and with the Old Testament prophets. The new age started with the resurrection of Jesus, new creation is already not in its fullness, but in its beginning. With us, This is the first day of Advent, a time of waiting. Advent is not pretending that Jesus didn't come 2,000 years ago. Advent is saying, come Lord Jesus, come. Return, we need your presence with us so much. And what we express in that is not a hope for some disembodied life in heaven but of bodily existence in a transformed and renewed earth. In the final chapters of John's vision, we have in many ways not just the fulfillment, but the completeness, a completeness which is a superabundance of what he described in the gospel that also bears his name. That we will abide in him and he will be with us, that we will be his people, that we will know that abundant life that he talks of. And in John's gospel, we read those famous opening words that the word was with God, but the word came to be with us, and that all things came into being through the word who was with God, that in him was life, and the life that was in him is the light of all the people that not just sound a bit like what we've just read there's no sun because Jesus is the light of all the people all we see and hear in Revelation 21 and 22 came into being as well through this word through the work that he does for us and famously important John his gospel tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we are starting to celebrate in this season. And Paul, I think, picks up many of these themes in his equally famous Christ hymn in Philippians 2, where he speaks, or should that be sings, I wonder if Paul sang, I'm sure he did, of Christ emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, remaining faithful to his father, even to the point of death. When we read Philippians 2, we have a description of the Lamb. It's interesting that at the end of the book, the image that John leaves us of Jesus is not of this mighty Colossus with fire and sword and whatnot, not of a rider on the fight horse, but he returns again to the Lamb. The Lamb is the abiding image of the character of Christ. And both John in his gospel and Paul in Philippians and elsewhere describe the movement of God as towards us. It's a downward movement from heaven to earth. And this downward movement is brought to its completeness, to its fulfillment. At the end of this age when Christ makes all things new. When heaven comes down to earth and earth is transformed and renewed And healed our future and God's future has some kind of continuity with our present reality as Ian said our current physical existence and yet there's a discontinuity we see that in Jesus Jesus was risen bodily he could be recognized and yet there was something strange and different about him and so that is our hope both for ourselves and for creation I have little hope for COP28. I have great hope in Jesus' transforming and renewing work. Heaven comes down to earth. God will transform our existence so the glory of God shines in and through all of new creation. That's why the the images that we have of these walls are, are translucent. The light goes through them is captured in them and refracted. That in God, everything is more truly itself by being more than itself. Because he dwells with us and we dwell fully with him. And the thought that God calls us and that he's created us to be more truly who we are and what he has made more fully human more fully us, more fully alive, is caught up in these images of the river and the tree. Now, there are no photos of the new heaven and new earth. You can't find them on Google Image, on um Oh, what's the one that I like to use? I can't remember. Anyway, you can't find them on the internet, so the garden in the Bay in Singapore, I've never been there, would like to go, will have to do as a visual substitute. But rather than get hung up on how literally, well, you know, is this, are there, are there actually going to be streets of gold, or will they just be not... Rather than get hung up on all that stuff of what life in new creation will look like, what we need to take more seriously are the theological messages that these images communicate to us. Theological messages that don't so much fill our heads with information, but change our vision so that we see our present reality differently and know that a different way of living is possible, not just in the future, but now. And for that to happen, our hearts need to be changed. What we hope for, what we desire, so that it comes into line with this vision of God's future and our future that he's calling us to live in, albeit in an anticipatory way, now. That's why he's given us his spirit. So that we can participate in that life now. We've not sung it for a long time. It's a very old chorus, isn't it? You know, I am a new creation. We're called, that's how we're called to live. It's dominated by the vision of life with God in which he dwells with us and we with him. It enables us to see Babylon. Not the shop near the city centre, but Babylon is described in, in uh, uh, Revelation and the rest of the Bible see it for what it is, reject its false offer of life, what it calls good, what it presents as abundance and wealth. To say no to that. Because what is happening here is, in these final chapters, chapters 21 and 22, is John is presenting this new city as a contrast to the picture that he's painted of Babylon and of the dragon and of the beasts. If you remember back to chapter 14, verse 8, there's been a lot, so let me remind you. Chapter 14, verse 8, there we read that Babylon forced all the nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and idolatry. Now, I imagine that this wine is even more disgusting than the tap water of London. No offence to anybody from London, but if you've been to London, you understand the point. We have here the fulfilment of the promise made in Revelation seven seventeen that the Lamb at the centre of the throne will shepherd, will guide his people to springs of the water of life. Water that is refreshing, healing, life-giving. It speaks of God's grace to his an invitation to share in his abundance. This isn't some struggling, trickling stream, nor is it some kind of like dangerous torrent that's going to sweep us um, away. It's a river that we who are thirsty are invited to come and receive it as God's gift to us. Come so that as Jesus promised in John 4, 14. That whoever drinks the water he gives them. Will never thirst. And while unquestionably the images of the water here. Have a spiritual meaning. That refer to salvation. That refer to the life that he gives us in Jesus. The materiality, not just of the vision of new creation, but throughout the book of Revelation, means this is also a comment on the provision and abundance of all life sustaining goods. We'll come back to that idea, but let's move on to the tree. Early commentators link the tree in this city garden, not just to the tree in the Garden of Eden, but to the cross of Christ. The tree on which Jesus died. In the 5th century, uh, it says yourself, how do you pronounce this, Fiona? How do you pronounce arrows? So oh, Sorry, go to the next slide, Sam. Yeah. Arles? A r Arles? Yeah. Arles. My pronunciation of strange words is not good. He stated that in speaking of the cross of the Lord, there is no tree that bears fruit in every season except the cross. To see why or how this one tree can be on either side of the river. Because it's singular. It's singular in our English translation. It's singular in the Greek. There's one tree, but it's on either side of the river. I don't know how that works. But at minimum, I think what that says to us is that in this city where the gates are never closed, the tree of life is accessible to all, all the time. The salvation, the newness of life made possible through the work of Christ and the cross is available for everyone, for all people. There is nobody who is excluded from coming to this tree and partaking of the life of Jesus' offers. It's accessible to all people. And that means that the cross can never be the exclusive property or emblem of any one people, any one nation, or any one faction within a nation. We should be wary. Well, in fact, more than wary. We should be concerned when we see the cross used as a political emblem of one faction or one group to elevate themselves over and above another, to marginalise one set of people and centralise another. The cross is accessible to all. It is for all. It is for all nations. It is for the healing of the nations. I don't know exactly what the leaves of the tree are, but they're for the healing of the nations. St. Jerome, he thought that the, the leaves were Scripture, and they were there to heal people of their ignorance of Jesus. He might be right. I'm not true. I think we stand on firmer ground when we focus, not trying to work out what the leaves are, but that this work of Christ, this transformation, renewal and healing he brings, brings together as one people, people from all nations, all people groups, all ethnicities, all languages. And moreover, in forming one holy people, from peoples and nations, our national, ethnic, cultural, and li- linguistic differences, they don't seem to be erased. They're still identifiably different peoples in different nations. If it had been erased, and back in chapter 5, in that wonderful picture we have of worship before the throne of God... John would have been able to distinguish that there were different people, people from every tribe and language and people from every nation, because if those differences had been erased, it'd be like looking at a magnolia wall, trying to identify the different specks of paint. The vision of Revelation, to borrow a phrase from our South African brothers and sisters, is that of a rainbow nation. Where cultural, ethnic, linguistic differences are not erased but overcome. We're different, and yet we are one. I think Paul uses that language to describe the church. The work of Christ, the victory of the Lamb, his making all things new means that the pernicious evils of racism, of xenophobia, and all their various forms will be erased. And where relationships have been defined by suspicion or prejudice of a sense of cultural superiority or national superiority, these things will be gone with the healing of the nations. So we will enjoy and celebrate each other with an authenticity that shines with the glory of God. Nothing accursed, verse 3 tells us, will be found in that beautiful and holy social space The city of God. Not to participate in cultural appropriation, but can I get a hallelujah? Thank you. Oh, we need some of our black brothers and sisters to kind of like... (laughs) The imagery shifts focus from that of the river and tree to a throne. Now, we recently had a coronation in this country and whether you were interested or not, it was hard to escape it. So I think we know what a throne looks like. And even if we tried our best to ignore that, we still kind of know what a throne looks like. But this throne is like, un- is unlike any earthly throne. Not in terms of its grandeur or of its more grand, but of who it accommodates It's the throne of God and the Lamb. Now, that's an unusual start, because the whole point of a throne is to communicate something about exclusiveness. I, and only I, am in charge. I exclusively reign. I have all the power, and I'm going to gather all the power to myself. That's what a throne normally communicates, but not here. The throne of God and the Lamb is not of that of some despotic potentate. The picture John paints for us is that everybody in the city sits on this throne. Maybe bony bums go in heaven, in the new creation. We're all on this throne together together. It's not just as we sing in the Christmas season that Christ will reign forever and ever, that his dominion and rule will know no end, but John tells us that we reign forever and ever. God's reigning over us gives way to our reigning with God. Now, somebody said, oh, you get the nice easy bit. In in Revelation, I wonder if this is the most terrifying picture in Revelation, because I've seen what happens when you give somebody a yellow bib. It's not not pretty. Well, it's not a terrifying picture, is it, our reigning with... God, because the sanctifying work that he has started in our lives is brought to completion and fullness. We are transformed, we are healed. So that trying to sneak in our own agendas and the stuff that we want, rather than being power crazy, our whole understanding of power and what it is to reign is transformed by the way of the Lamb. The purity and life-givenness of the river which throws through the city and is accessible to all is a gift to all and for all stands in stark contrast. The putrid wine Babylon forces people to drink. And so this revolutionary mode of governance, the politics of Lamb, the understanding of power where the entire population of New Jerusalem sits on the throne stands in contrast to the kinds of power, politics and governance that we find in Babylon. The women in chapter 17 laid claim to an exclusive rule over all peoples, not just the peoples, but all the kings as well. It was a rule, it was power based on violence and militarism. It was a paranoid lust for power and wealth. It's the plot line of every fictional political drama which depressingly is often a toning down of what happens in real life. John then shifts in gear and starts to wrap things up in verses 7 to 21. And if I was to summarise John's message in these final verses, then it would be to quote, verse 20, which is also echoed in verse 7. But before we get there, he tells us something important in verses 8 and 9. John is emotionally mature enough, which means he's spiritually mature, to include what I think is a deeply embarrassing truth about what he did. For our benefit, Having seen what he's seen, having communicated about the dangers of false worship, because a lot of the book of Revelation is about false worship, having seen the true and holy worship of the throne room of God, having had these fantastic revelations of God where he's, he's, he's taken up, what does he do? He falls at the feet of an angel who has been his guide. You must not do that, is the angel's response. I wonder what the tone of the angel was. Was it panic? Don't do that. Was it rebuke? Don't do that. I think it was loving and therefore effective. Woe to any of us who think we are done differently from John. There has, in one sense, always been celebrities within the church world. Would I have been a fanboy of Peter or Paul or John? The fact that we are able to read and refer to, kind of like the church fathers and other people through the history of the church, shows that there have been people who have, we've given special attention to. But in our modern media saturated world, the pedestals we build are bigger and glitzier. No matter how gifted or anointed somebody is, no matter how big their profile becomes, or success, too often defined as Babylon might define it, their ministry is, we need to see them not with the criteria of the world the matrix of Babylon. But as the angel tells John to view him, I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. Worship is for God and the Lamb. Let's take care that our worship is not diverted, no matter how subtly, by celebrity, away from God and onto people who are just. Fellow servants, part of our Baptist ecclesiology, Baptist way that we do church is, there's nothing special about me. There's actually nothing special about you. We are just fellow members. We are brothers, as you are brothers and sisters. We're called to step out into our gifting but there ain't no hierarchy here. Worship is for God and for the Lamb. Let me start to draw things to close with John's words in verse 20. He writes, The one who testifies to these things, that's Jesus, the Lamb, says, Surely I am coming soon. And the response of John, and I think the response of the seven churches he was writing to is, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, amen is not just another word for yes. It it does mean yes, but it means more than that. To say yes to something is just to give mental consent. Sometimes we say yes without really thinking about it or quite dismissively. Amen's more substantial. Amen is saying, let it be so. It's saying, I am up for this and in for this. I'm going to be part of this. And so to Jesus' words, surely I am coming soon, the response is not just yes, but amen. Amen. And followed by a cry, an active cry, Come, Lord Jesus. To say this, Amen, Come, Lord Jesus, is to say, John, you've done your job in opening our eyes. We now see Babylon for what it is. We see the glorious hope that is in Christ. We cry not just come Jesus but come Lord Jesus to to say that Jesus is Lord is to start to dethrone all other claims of lordship in and over our lives to say come Lord Jesus is to say I may be exiled here in Babylon but I've left Babylon now how can we leave Babylon when it's so all encompassing Reminds me again of of John in the gospel of of we're in the world, but we're not of the world. St. Augustine gives us a starter for 10. They begin to depart who begin to love. Many there are who depart and not know it. For the walk of departure is a movement of the heart, and yet they depart from Babylon. Our departure from Babylon starts with love. Reminded of a famous essay that a theologian, Stanley Hervas, wrote. And the title was, Love is Not All You Need. Because not just any love, not romantic, sentimental love, but the love of God. And we know that God's love is not just an idea or a feeling. But that it looks like something. It takes bodily form. We're citizens of the new city. We've been called to participate with God in building a home both for Himself and for humankind. What we do now, how we love now, how we act now matters. That's why even Jesus addresses the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, He repeatedly speaks of their works or their deeds. He speaks of what they do. Now, when I was going to speak on Revelation 22, I uh, read Miroslav Fulf and Ryan McCallie-Lintz's beautifully written book, The Home of God. And they suggest that in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation should radically reshape our understandings of economics, of politics, and of religion. I prefer the category of hope, if you want to go to the next slide, Sam, Um, of hope eh, to religion. So let me end with brief comments on these. The symbolism of the river life and the tree of life speak of our super-fruitfulness. This tree bears fruit every month of the year. An abundance of all life-sustaining goods the competitive, supply-and-demand, free-market economics of our current Babylon is based on the premise of scarcity and exclusivity. And exclusivity leads to the idea that what I have is mine. I mean, think of how many products there are now. You know, the whole thing about personal computer its mine. It's not yours, it's mine. We all need our own thing. And it erodes any notion an idea that arises from Scripture of the common good. It makes us forget the deeper reality that the cattle in the Thousand Hill don't belong to Old Farmer MacDonald, but they belong to God. That all that we have is God's and therefore can't be exclusively mine. Because it's God's gift. A gift not to just bless me, but to bless others. That beautiful scene at the opening of um, Victor Hugo's Les Mis, where Jean Valjean steals the candlesticks from the priest. And then the priest is quizzed about it. He says, didn't steal anything from me. It's because the priest was so deeply informed by the economics of God, where what he had was not exclusively his, but was for the benefit of all. An economics based in scarcity leads to fear and violence, as with our desires bent by the culture of Babylon, out of shape, we fight over that which is limited and violently protect that which we have already gained. And if that's not true, there wouldn't be a business selling alarms for our houses. The glimpse of our and God's future, which John gives us, summons us to be a concrete witness to now, to what we see then. It summons us to let our desires be transformed by the Spirit, as we let love of God and love of neighbour reshape us. Both in Macanaly-Lintz write, Unlike the dragon and the Babylonians, New Jerusalemites do not live at the expense of others, depriving them in order to empower themselves. Like God, and because God indwells them, they are sources of water that satisfies others. Jesus promised that we would be a people from whom streams of living water would flow. That's a challenge. How are we doing at that? Because the New Jerusalem fundly reshapes our economics so that what counts as wealth is redefined. It's not about how much people have, but actually what counts as wealth. Are we rich with the building stones of new creation? Scripture says we are, even if we don't have a dime in our pocket. We could do a whole series on how our citizenship of the city of God reshapes our politics, but let me circle back to where we were earlier, that in the New Jerusalem all nations, including languages and cultures, will be present. The language of them, see them over there, or them coming in various modes of transport, that holds at arm's length or builds walls and fences will be gone. A Christ-shaped politics is deeply anti-xenophobic, deeply anti-racist, deeply anti-misogynistic, and other ones that we could add. In witnessing to the testimony of Jesus, we are called to exemplify this politics in the here and now. We're called to live this out. And how we act and how we react, how we socialise with each other, how we socialise with each other who are part of this community, as well as our neighbours and work colleagues. Finally, in the glimpse into the future of God, creation, and humankind, which Revelation gives us, it calls us to bear witness to hope. A hope that isn't optimism or idealism or romanticism or any other ism we can think of. John gives us a sketch composed of these fantastical images. It's thin in detail. We're left puzzled by much of the symbolism. What's symbolic? What is literal? So, while we, strictly speaking, don't know the details of what we are hoping for, we know who we are hoping in. And to know who we are hoping in means we can live in the present and face the future with joy. A joy that strengthens. A joy that strengthens us to live as dissident disciples, empowered by the Spirit, for faithful worship and witness. And so we join with the saints of old and cry, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening to this week's Calling a City to Life talk. We hope that you enjoyed it and that you'll join us again later in the week for the chat. Speak to you again soon. Goodbye.